Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galente, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Anyway, I, uh, as we approach the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, uh, my guest is Mark Seal, author of Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. Uh, the, the Godfather's influence on popular culture to me is unrivaled and is as watchable today as it was uh, as on the 10th viewing, uh, since the first was a shock of major proportions to our systems. We hadn't seen anything exactly like that. Uh, on March the 14th, 1972, I was in Miami, Florida. I was in the Schmata business, uh, and I was working the, uh, at Burdines at uh, 163rd Street. I stepped out of the Miami Heat, lowercase h, got online, and was absolutely amazed. So I guess my first question to you, it's kind of like, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Where were you on March the 14th, 1972? Yeah, so I was in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, where my mom lived back then. And I stepped into a theater uh, to watch this movie, The Godfather, with, I was a college freshman. And I always said, I walked in one person and I walked out the another. It just opened my eyes to a whole new world. And from that point forward, I was obsessed. Well, you wrote, you wrote a lengthy piece for Vanity Fair, I believe 2009. Uh, and now you've dramatically updated it. So it, it had been a passion of yours for a long time? Yeah, it, it had been. And of course, that story, uh, when I was assigned to write a story about the making of the movie The Godfather in 2008, uh, it wasn't work. It was just pure uh, joy. I was so excited. It was like a gift. And uh, so I was able to interview a lot of people who are now dearly departed, mm -hmm. and uh, including Robert Evans, who was the head of production at Paramount, and many of the actors, including Al Martino, who played uh, Johnny Fontaine, and Abe Vigoda, who well, it's played a, It's Tessio. a stretch to call uh, Al Martino an actor. Abe Vigoda, right. I could go <laughs> along with you. <laughs> yeah, so Al Martino was a singer, right. but this was his, his first big role in a film, and he was so great in it, I thought. And, and was anyway, he lucky yeah. that Sinatra didn't take him out? Probably so, but uh, yeah, he, uh, he, uh, he was determined to play that role, and he did. Uh, you know, as, you, as you delve yeah. into this, I, as I was preparing, there are so many characters. The, the people behind the scenes would make a great movie uh, all on its own. So what I thought we'd do is I'll talk to you a little bit about each of the major participants, and then we'll flesh out this story almost like we're looking at a, uh, a cast uh, crawling down the, uh, the screen. And why don't we begin at the very beginning with Mario Puzzo, a, an impoverished, uh, overweight uh, gambler, and the book, The Godfather, the, the genesis yeah. of all of this. Yeah, yeah so, so he's, he's the, the real hero, hero of the story. story. He, Mario Puzzo, was... Uh, a writer who had considerable debts from gambling and he had a large family, five kids. He had written two previous novels, both of which were commercial, were, you know, well-received critically, but they hadn't done well 
uh, commercially. And so he finally said, I'm tired of writing for art. I'm going to write for money. Um, and it all culminated one night when he was uh, had a severe gallbladder attack. And he directed a taxi to take him to the VA uh, hospital in downtown New York. And once he arrived there, the pain struck. He opened the door. He fell out of the taxi and into a gutter. And there, staring up at the night sky, he, he would later tell Time magazine, he said, here I am, a published author, and I'm dying like a dog. And he said that that was the point where he decided, I'm going to become rich and famous. Well, he, he certainly became famous. I don't know what he did with the money. But uh, talk about The Godfather itself, the conception and, and the writing of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so so Puzo said he never met a genuine gangster, but what he what he was was a tremendous researcher with a vivid imagination, which he honed as a pulp fiction writer for magazines. And um, when he tried to sell his his third book, he was turned down by publishers, and they said one of them said if only it had a little bit more of that mafia stuff because he had mentioned had a mafia figure in his second book. So, so he went, went home, home and, and the Kefauver hearings were on, uh, had been on television in the 50s, and Joe Valachi had testified before Congress. He was an informant who had mm -hmm. been in the mob. For the first guy to break Omerta. Yeah, exactly. And so, so Puzo had watched all of this from his living room couch, and he went down into his basement and before his manual typewriter with the kids, uh, the noise of his kids, and a pool beside a pool table. He began to dream, and he created the family Corleone and all those amazing characters. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and how, uh, you know, uh, Robert Evans is a, uh, perhaps the key figure in this whole scenario. You know, Robert Evans, who was a, uh, uh, a millionaire uh, garment manufacturer with his brother in, uh, in New York, uh, right. was discovered by uh, Norma Shearer. Uh, Irving Falberg's wife at a at a pool in Hollywood, and he played Irving Falberg in The Man of a Thousand Faces. Uh, I mean, almost, uh, you know, stop traffic, beautiful. It's kind of hard to be a guy, a straight guy, and talk about that. But he was he was beautiful, and yeah, he was, uh, and totally promiscuous. He was married to the extraordinarily beautiful Camilla Sparve went off to make a movie, came back, and he'd been stooping every model in town and decided she didn't want to be married to the town whore. So who knew from that background he would become this indefatigable producer? I don't know if you've seen a, there was a guy in Canada who died about 15 years ago, Brian Linen, who did an interview with him. Uh, it's about a 30-minute segment that I saw, and he talks particularly about the importance of post-production. And you realize uh, he is so committed to the, to the craft, to, to getting it absolutely right, even if it delays uh, a picture for six months. And I think his initial impulse on this, she says, I don't want any Jews making this movie. I want, I want Italians. Exactly. Yeah, he wanted it to, where you could smell the spaghetti on the screen, he said. And he was determined to bring The Godfather uh, out and touch magic is what the way he put it, and mm -hmm. he was he was determined to do whatever it what it took to make that movie great, uh, which of course he did. But you know, uh, Coppola was not the first, the second, the third, or the fourth choice by anybody who was uh, 
in, involved in the uh, executive offices of that studio. What was it? He was a, a gifted writer. He got an Academy Award for the uh, for Patton, but he made the Rain People with Jimmy Kahn, and I forget what the oh uh, Finian's Rainbow. So he was a, a a multiple failure at the box office. So what was it? What was it about yeah. that Evans saw? Because Evans, I to me, is is a brilliant a brilliant producer. Yeah, well, it, it wasn't, wasn't so much Evans as much as, as Peter Bark. Peter Bark okay. had known Coppola for a long time. He, Peter Bark, Bar Bar, just for those who don't know, was another executive, yeah. a high-level executive at Paramount during uh, Evans' reign. Yeah, he was Evans's right-hand man, Peter Bark, former New York Times reporter, who had interviewed Coppola, knew Coppola, knew his work, and he said, I'm, I want to give it to Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, and he said he's brilliant. And he was. He was brilliant. He was living in San Francisco with uh, starting his own studio. He had left the commercialism of Los Angeles to, to create art in San Francisco. And he didn't want to do it in the beginning. He thought it was, you know, monster films didn't play. The, the audience had moved past all of that. But he needed the money. And so... Um, uh, George Lucas, who was Coppola's assistant, the future director of Star Wars, said he was like his, his protege more than his assistant. Which had already started, right? Yes, uh -huh, in San Francisco. And Lucas told Coppola, he said, look, you know, the sheriff's at the door. You know, we're going to be out of business. Do the Godfather for the money, and then we can make the films we want to make. Which, which was true. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you throw into that equation that, that uh, uh, crazy Charlie Bluthorn in, in New York, uh, Gulfin and Dalt and, and Devour, I guess. Is <laughs> Gulfin, Gulfin, Gulfin Devour, with his bizarre uh, Viennese Yiddish uh, accent. And, uh, and Francis uh, took some uh, work to New York and convinced him to keep him on. Exactly. exactly. So, so Charlie Bluthorn, uh, his company Gulf and Western had acquired Paramount and they had had, you know, flop after flop until they had Love Story. Uh, and then Love Story turned out to be a reprieve, but not a rescue of the studio. And Bluthorn, um, you know, said, let's do, the, you know, the, they did the Godfather. They had to do the Godfather because it was the novel was racing up the bestseller list around and the world. They bought it for next to nothing, right? What did he pay? $50,000? Yeah, well, it, the, the stories differ. You know, Evan said that Puzo came, in, came into his office with the pages under his arm, deeply in debt, into the bookies for 10 grand, he said. And uh, they offered, they gave him 12.5 to uh, option the, the script. But other people said, including Peter Bart, said the, the pages came to, came to him first. And so there's a little gray area about how the studio acquired the uh, novel. But most everybody agreed that they, they got, got a great, great deal, deal and got it pretty cheap. No, absolutely. And he actually, he got a, a little bit of money. I remember uh, Evans talking about how much money Paramount made on that film because there was so, the, the points that were out there were really tiny. Yeah, yeah. It, was it was a huge sensation worldwide. And it, you know, resuscitated the studio, mm -hmm. made Paramount one of the most admired and wealthiest studios in the world. And, uh, generated a new uh, generation of movie stars from unknowns and made Coppola, uh, who considered one of the great directors of the new era of film. Yeah, well, he made those two of the Godfathers and, and certainly the conversation to me are uh, monumental achievements.
And that was the, that was the film he that was the film he wanted to make at the time, but he deferred it to, yeah. to make a living and, and pay his bills. Uh, I want to talk a little bit before we talk about some of the actors. I want to, a little bit about Al Ruddy and the uh, uh, the job of a hands-on producer and, and Ruddy's yeah. role in finally getting this. There were so many opportunities for things to go wrong. Exactly. So or for, or for people to be killed. Yeah. So Al Ruddy is this amazing producer who had done smaller films uh, when he was offered the, ro the role of producing The Godfather. And of course, he didn't believe it at first. You know, he thought, he thought it, would, it might not happen. But he went to New York, met with Charlie Bluedorn, was given the job. And then uh, he was inundated with uh, wannabe actors wanting to be cast in the film because they said they were going to be casting unknowns and Italian-Americans. And then he moved the production to New York. You know, there were some problems in Los Angeles where Ruddy's par was shot up one night uh, by, somewhat, by certain people who didn't want... Uh, certain connect, supposedly connected people who didn't want the film made. And uh, that continued yeah, Al, when he Al got to New York. Al was a street guy. He grew up in Montreal. Yeah, Al, I mean, Al he's, is, he's a guy from the streets. He's in his 90s now. He's the, uh, you know, he's, uh, and he still totally uh, remembers everything and is one of the more iconic uh, people in, in Hollywood. And, uh, yeah, he rose up and he was... Without, without without Al Ruddy, that movie just could not have been made. Yeah, I, I think you know one of the things I, I I learned most about your book, or reinforced some things I may have known, was just how important uh, the different elements are in getting a film, and the thousands and thousands of tiny decisions that are being made uh, <clears throat> that affect the overall all film. That you don't realize yeah. that, you know, I'm sure when, when they're going along, you don't entirely get it. But, you know, whether uh, some of his epic, a couple of his epic arguments with Gordon Willis, who is the, uh, perhaps the unsung hero or character of this film. The look at that film is just staggering. Yeah, exactly. Gordon Willis, who was known as the Prince of Darkness, because he... <laughs> Painted with the light uh, in the dark. I mean, there was so much. Right, so John, John Alton's book was painting with light. Ah, yeah. The great the so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, in the, the beginning, you know, when they when Evans and, and Peter, Peter Barth saw the dailies, they thought, well, do we have on our sunglasses? It's so dark you can't see anybody. But you know, when that Undertaker's face Ooh, rises like the moon into the darkness and he says I believe in America I mean it's one of the great openings of any film uh, ever made and then just that darkness is just lends itself to that story and makes it timeless you know and lack of the lack of primary colors the the subtlety the browns the autumn the almost like the trees when he's walking up in where Connecticut wherever it's supposed to be when he comes back to meet Kay uh, it it just captured a period, like and we're talking about post-war in the '40s. It just it, it felt so natural, like you know, like great oh, yeah. sepia photography. It, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't sharp, you know, overly sharp. It just there were subtle edges to it. Yeah, he said Gordon Willis said he wanted it to look like an old Sunday magazine rotogravier mm -hmm. uh, story, you know, where it looks like it's old and and. Uh, but it, it doesn't look old when you watch it. It looks brand new, and, it, and that I think that's one of the one of the secrets to its success. Oh, just so many elements to that, you know. And you go back and you look at, at Coppola, who was uh, nearly uh, 
Well, nearly fired on many occasions, uh, beginning with his uh, desire to cast uh, Brando, who was on the ropes. Uh, no one, he had to put up a bond. They were petrified he wouldn't show up. He delayed the uh, thing, and he turned out to be a, a prince on the set. Talk about uh, Brando's, basically his audition, his self-audition. Yeah, yeah, so, so uh, nobody, nobody wanted, wanted Brando. At 47, he was considered uh, washed up and temperamental and a problem on the set. And But uh, Puzo wanted him from the start, and Coppola wanted him, too. But the studio didn't want him, but they agreed to uh, consider him if he would do a screen test, among other things. So Coppola didn't call it a screen test. He called it a makeup test. And he and a cinematographer named Hiro Narita and But he didn't tell others, them this. He just showed up. Yeah, yeah, he just showed. They, they, well, they had an appointment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they had, had an appointment to meet at his home on Mulholland Drive, and uh, they show up one morning. It's early in the morning, and Brando walks out. He's forty-seven. He's young. He's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail, wearing a kimono. I think he just done burned. He was uh, had the blonde hair. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And, and he, he uh, right before their eyes, with the cameras rolling. He dabs some shoe polish on his upper lip. He stuffs Kleenex in his cheeks, says, I want to look like a bulldog. And right before the cameras, he becomes Don Corleone. And it was amazing. It was astounding. It stunned everybody into speechlessness. Nobody could say a word. It was so perfect. And so Coppola took that footage, flew directly to New York, showed it to Charlie Bluedorm, who was amazed, as was everyone else, and Brando had the part. And after that, uh, the film footage of that amazing makeup test, or whatever you want to call it, vanished. And I always think of it like Hemingway's letters, suitcase full of, let of, of pages. Yeah, 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 the white gloss. Was it the Garden Leon or the Garden Nord? Uh, one of those two. Probably the Garden Leon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the girl Leon, and, and I always think of, the, of that footage as being like that suitcase full of Hemingway's uh, pages, you know, early pages, because it's now lost. Well, who's, At least who's, it who's seems holding lost. it? Someone must be holding it somewhere, wait, waiting yeah. for the price to rise. So <laughs> I can I'd love to see it. I know everybody else would too. You know, and the thing with Brando is all the guys and these young, well, people that become iconic to us, uh, so looked up to. So you begin with Al Pacino, who had made Panic in Needle Park, uh, but had primarily been a stage actor. And uh, I, yes. I used to refer to him as the dwarf. I don't know if it was Charlie, one of those guys, you know, one of those guys, because he, he was tiny. And uh, yes. so, you know, and this. Uh, his performance is to, the transformation, the subtle evolution of this college uh, all-American hero into this stone-cold killer, uh, absolutely devoid of empathy, um, yeah, is just remarkable as it flows over, over time. And, and he wasn't wanted. Jimmy Kahn was being tested for that role, and, um, but, but Coppola wanted Pacino. Yeah, yeah Cop Coppola said every time he uh, closed his eyes and envisioned the scene in Sicily, he saw Al Pacino's face. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted Pacino, but Coppola wanted Pacino because, uh, you know, Pacino had not been in a, a film that had been released. He had filmed The Panic in Legal. Oh, it wasn't Park. out yet? Okay. It, it, it hadn't been out yet, but so... 
he had, was primarily known as a stage actor. He had won a Tony for Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie? Mm-hmm. Al Ruddy said he saw him on Broadway, and yes, he was short, but he was, Al Ruddy said when he performed, he looked about seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was an amazing actor, and look what happened. He was, he was Michael Corleone, and it mm-hmm. made, uh, made him a superstar. Well, yeah, and gave him so many... You know, and, and Jimmy Kahn, whose career kind of crashed and burned a little bit, but uh, but he was a, an ideal Sonny. The only, I guess the well, Abe Vigoda was uh, Jewish, but in that in that group, the only uh, the only non-Italian. But you know, he was a guy from the streets, also Oceanside, New York. Played football in Michigan State. Uh, not the kind of guy you want to have an argument with, and uh, and he had that. That was a lot, to a large degree to me. That was probably what Jimmy Kahn was like. I knew a lot of guys like Jimmy Kahn growing up in Brooklyn. So he really uh, personified yeah. that hot temper uh, street guy. Yeah, yeah he, he was, was so great, wasn't he? He said he, he, said he, he, he knew, knew that, that world. world. He knew uh, the way that these men talked, the way these men acted. He went and he bought two-toned shoes from a thrift <laughs> shop, shop that, that were too tight, tight, so it gave him that kind of cocky walk, you know, that where he was walking and talking, and he just was huge. I mean, you looked at him. Nobody else could have played uh, Sonny like J- James Conn yeah, and he was so he was so, you know, so perfect in the sense of, as you say, just capturing the flavor. And these guys, you know, Pacino was also from New York. Now, he's, he was Italian also, yes. but let's not cast all right. the time. I don't, want to, I don't want Joe Colombo to come out of the grave and take a shot at me. But, uh, but, but these guys, you know, they felt it. You know, when, when Fat Clemenza... Uh, Richard Castellano, as it turns out, was related to Paul Castellano. Uh, they say, well, okay, so, so that's the situation. I'm not, not, not sure. You know, his, his wife wrote a book where his wife wrote a book where she who, said who, was, who played his wife in the film. Yeah, exactly. She's the one who said, "Don't forget the cannoli." Right. And uh, she said she wrote a book saying that he was related to Paul. But, uh, you know, I was able to speak to his sister who said he wasn't. So that's a little unclear. But he really inhabited that role. Whatever he did, he knew that world. And oh, when, he, when, so he's, lo- when yeah. he's making, as you say, you can smell the gravy. Oh, tell the girl you're going to die. She don't yeah. really tell her you love her. She's going to gonna die. And, Is, and was a little, that the best? And a little thing the with the, uh, the sugar to take away some of the acidity. That, I mean, yes. that, that, oh, my God. It's, that's, that's, he, should have, he, he would have had his own cooking show today. He was, he was so, so great, great. <laughs> and what a loss, you know. Well, he, yeah, he died yeah. early, but he was such a great you know, actor. And, and, in and the role. sequel, you know, Bruno Kirby, who uh, had that little pillow in his belly to look like Clemenza, but another Italian kid who uh, who grew up in that world. And then we get then we get Bobby Duvall, who had done who was Boo Radley. Uh, yes, he was the taxi driver in in, in Bullet. Uh, later on, he was in the conversation, but that was after after this film. But he was uh, also a perfect choice. The, uh, yes. you know, I, I love the scene with uh, Jack Waltz with John Marley uh, about, he says, you go back and I don't want any super goomba wops coming out here. He says, well, you know, I'm Irish, I'm German Irish. And he, he continues to insult him. But he had a, he shakes his hand. But there was a, uh, there were several things to me that were going on. You know, he was very cool. He was a perfect attorney. Very much, yes. you know. In, in charge, and, and yet also very much, uh, he, he was, Michael heard him by not accepting him really as, as being the brother that he truly was. And, and you feel that pain, uh, and you feel yeah. it, 
every opportunity that Michael has to hurt him, he does. Well, yeah, yeah you, know, you know, yeah, Duval was perfect. As, as I write in the book, it's like Coppola envisioned the cast from the beginning. He saw Duval, he saw Pacino, he saw Khan, he saw Diane Keaton. You know, but uh, he had to fight for these characters well, because they weren't for a second, stars. Mark, how did he? How yeah. was he so aware of these guys? Because these were not well. They weren't in California. Yeah. These were New York guys. Yeah, he knew of, uh, of course, Duvall and Pacino because they had been in The Rain People. Okay. Uh, not Pacino. He knew of Duvall and Khan because they had been in The Rain People. Mm -hmm. And he just knew of, uh, he had met with uh, Pacino, as I mentioned. I interviewed someone who was at the audition of Pacino, had an audition of Pacino, and apparently Coppola had met with him before and knew his work. I don't exactly know how, but uh, he knew of his work and he knew he was a great actor. And Keaton, he thought, would be great because Diane Keaton was on a commercial in those days. Uh, and he thought she was a little quirky and may add some comic relief. She was in the comic relief. Yeah, that was much later, but he thought right, no, she I'm was saying, the, but she, the personality yeah. of Annie Hall. Oh, yeah, exactly. So he saw that in something in her that she, he thought she could would be the perfect K, of course, which she was because she was light brought some lightness to the whole thing. And so, and so he, he saw all these actors from the very start and he brought them all up to San Francisco for a homemade screen test. His wife cut their hair and they did this footage that you can still see online. Well, I, I think he made a little uh, a little pasta uh, with meatballs. I mean, you know, I, I think if I, if I remember correctly, when he, he went to do that, uh, that makeup test with uh, Brando, he brought uh, provolone and, and prosciutto and uh, He's kind of, you know, I think with Coppola, everything is around food. Yes, exactly. And look what he's done. He has that great, the wine and, uh, you know, the Coppola wines and the Nibon Coppola wines much later, of course. But yeah, he just knew that world, you know, because his, his father, Carmine Coppola, was a composer. And uh, they, they moved from town to town and he's from an Italian-American family. And so he knew that world cold. No, absolutely. Well, we're talking, I, I mentioned the Joe Colombo, the Italian-Americans, uh, like I guess the equivalent of the uh, Anti-Defamation League uh, for Italians. Uh, talk a little, bit about, a little bit about Joe Colombo and uh, some, of the, some of his efforts to thwart the production of this film in New York. Yeah, yeah in, in the, the beginning, beginning uh, Colombo was the founder of the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And his mission and all of the thousands of people who were who were members of the league, was to eradicate um, the stereotyping of Italian-Americans in popular culture. And uh, the mo word mafia was the, you know, summed up everything that was wrong with the portrayal of uh, Italian-Americans in popular culture. And the, the Godfather's original title, Mario Puzo no novel, was mafia. But he changed it to the Godfather. But still, when the movie began production, uh, that movie became more or less, you know, in their sights, and they wanted to stop it because they thought it would be more stereotyping. But Al Ruddy was able to meet with Joe Colombo, as I write in the book, and all he wanted was one word taken out of the script, and that one word was mafia. And Ruddy knew it was only mentioned one time in the script when Walt, as you said, when the studio chief uh, Waltz meets with Tom Hagen, and, and so, so he, he took, took it out. out. They, they took, took out, out that, that one word, word. and for that, that one simple excision, they, they got, got a world of cooperation because the, 
the locations that had been shut down and not available suddenly became available. The truck drivers who were threatening to stop work suddenly became available. And everybody wanted parts of the movie. And uh, Colombo became, uh, you know, helped the production at that point. I mean, he paid the way, you know, so... Everything, Everything was on, on because it had, had to be, be shot, shot in New York. I mean, where sure. else could The Godfather be shot? Couldn't other be than Toronto. New York. Right. right, right, exactly. So, so it was, it was uh, another uh, instance of succeeding against all odds. Well, there's, there's an unknown personality lurking behind the scenes, as he was wont to do. Uh, a Chicago attorney named Sidney Korshak. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Sidney Korshak, uh, tell us what he did and, and how quickly he did it. Yeah, so he was a, a consigliere, I guess is the way you would put it, to uh, Robert Evans. And uh, Robert Evans would call upon him from time to time. And uh, Korshak, who was very well connected as a lawyer, uh, he was well living in Los Angeles. Uh, has multiple meanings here. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. he was uh, attorney to, I mean, you have to. I can't exactly remember all the connections, but if you look in the book, it tells it all really well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I can well, remember Lou right Wasserman here. and Julie Stein, and you know that whole gang of uh, the Chicago outfit. So I mean, he was, uh, you know, big time, uh, uh, big time mafia attorney, uh, and Sidney uh, could move the world. So it, yeah. So uh, what happened was. Um, you know, Al Pacino wasn't available after they fought so hard to get him. And uh, he was committed to do the gang that couldn't shoot straight for MGM. And uh, as uh, Evans, Robert Evans would later relate, um, all it took was a call from Korshak uh, to the powers at MGM, and suddenly uh, Al Pacino was available. Uh, so, you know, he was, uh, he, he, you're right, he, he, really, I mean, he could Move, make things happen and move things and move the world. So he was quite a powerful ally. Yeah, he was allied. I have a story of a friend of mine who ran RKO Television in New York for many years was having a lights up a cigar at Nate Nowell's and Lou Wasserman, who was the head of Universal, was sitting over there. And uh, he kind of looks over with this funny look. And, uh, and, uh, and my friend's, uh, uh, friend says, put out the cigar if you ever want to work in this town again. Yeah, exactly. So, wow. that, that was the level that those guys were operating at. Wow. Crazy. Uh, you know, I, I thank you on many levels. I went back and I, I watched both of these films again. I, I, I don't know how, 10 times? And I think, as you mentioned in the book, every time you watch it, uh, you pick something up, there's a nuance, there's something going on. Now, that's probably a part of the genius of what uh, Coppola was able to do. But also, as it's like reading a great book, you know, every 10 years, uh, it, it hits you with different things because you're a different person. How, yeah, exactly. How, how has The Godfather affected you and changed you? Well, I mean, as I said, it opened up a whole new world. I, you know, who knows, a college freshman from the South, I didn't know that world existed at that point as a, when I was a kid, you know, I was removed from, from so much of that. And also it changed me in the fact that, you know, the book, the novel and the movie isn't so much just about a gang of criminals, but it's also about a family. 
And that's why that's what the magic of the Godfather is all about. That you learn that these men are family men more more than anything else. Uh, that as Puzo wrote, quoting his mother, "A man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man." Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that these fam- these men and it starts off the, the first scene is this huge wedding where there's uh, you introduce to all the characters and their obvious love and affection and dedication to each other and their subordinate family you know Tessio and Clemenza and and uh, uh, you know the turncoat Poligato who throws the sandwich to Clemenza as he's drinking wine and blowing like a whale as as Puzo wrote. I mean, you just you're immersed in this world from that wedding forward, and that's the magic that endures to this day, 50 years later. Have you spoken to Francis recently in, in conjunction with this adaptation? This he answered a lot of questions and uh, was very helpful and was able to really help uh, with with insight into the film, both for the Vanity Fair story, which was published in 2009, mm-hmm. and then for the book, which was published three weeks ago. Does he, since he's done so many things subsequently, and I, I alluded to the conversation, then he made a couple of commercial films. I mean, to me, uh, Godfather 1 and 2 and, and the conversation are, are monumental films to be watched over and over and over. Uh, lots of others, I can't even think of them to, to come back to. Uh, does he look, look back at that as the apogee of his career and afterward he was less interested in making movies? That I don't know. You know, I know that he's, I'm sure, sure that he's proud of it, mm-hmm. but at the time, he didn't know it was going to be a huge success like that. He said many times, you know, that mm-hmm. he thought, uh, you know, he didn't know it would really work, that he was in Paris, right? He was in Paris at La mm-hmm. Hotel. In the Oscar Wilde, the room where Oscar Wilde died, I believe, right. and uh, on the left bank there, and he was uh, right pounding out the screenplay for The Great Gatsby again for Robert Evans mm. and Paramount when his phone rang and his wife says, "Francis, you won't believe it. She was still in New York and the lines were around the block." She goes, "It's a phenomenon," which it was, and that's when he realized that he had directed this. Uh, Movie that was on its way to becoming a huge success. Well, I don't think, I, I don't think anyone could have predicted it. I'm trying to think back, you know, in terms of '72. We're not yet at Watergate. Uh, I'm tr- a, trying to grasp the, zeit, the zeitgeist through what was I, a 26 year old, 25 year old kid in 1972, uh, of, you know, what was happening in the world that might have made it resonate so much to us. Uh, yeah, all of us, you know, know. Our, our parents, us, you know, yeah. the whole. Multiple generations. Yeah, it was uh, you know it was a time of great uh, tumult and uh, and and it was kind of the hippie era still, mm-hmm. and there were you know protests against Vietnam and uh, there were Watergate was on the way coming and Nixon mm-hmm. was in the White House. I mean, it was like it was a time of uncertainty, and you know you get this man Don Corleone where there's no. You know, there's no no question about what he would do for his family or his you know or, or men and by ex- by yeah. extension, you know, Bonacera or the Baker, as, if, as they are indebted to him or obeisant to him, uh, they're his friend. Exactly. Yeah, and it's like as uh, a, a film scholar Robert Thompson wrote, 
Puzo's book was like the new American Western. Robert Thompson or David Thompson? Robert Thompson. I believe it's Robert Thompson, the film scholar. Okay. Uh, and he uh, he wrote that you know it represented this new set a set of values, the new American Western, and uh, you know that his that Puzo's <laughs> gangsters represented a, a new form of of, uh, of outlaws. But you know they were. Uh, he put it really well. Um, I'm going to look in this and see exactly what he says. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, he put it put it well that what it all represented. He goes, Robert J. Thompson. Uh, he said at that point the traditional, the whole myth of America was up for grabs. Gunsmoke was you know popular but still fading. Easy Rider came out uh, soon after that or before. Sixty nine, I believe. Yeah. Sixty nine, yeah. And uh, he said, into this contested cultural environment, the Godfather had, uh, introduced another, a new myth, another myth. And, and Puzo's New American Western had an unbreakable code, a solid sense of family, and an ability to, to bypass bureaucratic loopholes um, and presented an alternate world where people could get things done. And I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't know to what degree that was in the, you know, what was, what was he thinking when he's doing all this? I mean, you don't, you know, he can't be thinking of that result. It just, it's a, it, it's a product of, of all the work uh, that he did. Uh, I, I can't let you get away without uh, mentioning Godfather 2, which in vernacular is the only sequel to be equal to or superior to the original. Uh, is there, is there going to be a sequel to your book, uh, Godfather 2? And I don't have any plans to at this point, you know. I would love to, of course, because I love to stay uh, immersed in this world. And it's but such, such a, a, a different film in, in so many yeah. ways. There's so much going yeah. on there that to be able to, I, I always felt that uh, one was almost like an opera, and then yeah. uh, two was like this uh, uh, very, very sophisticated uh, episodic TV series that you'd find today on Netflix or something with lots of depth and lots of time for character development. But in any, any event, uh, I, I encourage all our listeners to go out and get a jug of red wine, uh, probably better than what Clemenza was drinking. And if you can find a cannoli in Colorado, you know, do it. Right, exactly. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. This has been fun, and uh, this will uh, this will be broadcast uh, next week. I'm doing a feature on your book uh, on Thursday, and um, anyway, uh, Mark Seal, uh, grazie, grazie. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at. Terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.